All right. Good morning, everybody. The, uh, the content of what I'm going to be talking about today is probably not something that we're used to hearing a lot of in society. Um, society likes to tell us that we have it all together. In fact, there's, there's a massive market, really, for, for encouraging you to, to let you know that you have it all together and you haven't got any problems. But that's not really what the Bible says about us. The Bible actually lets us know that we do have problems, and we have problems that... Uh, that would be great uh, and that Jesus wants to, to fix and to help us out. So before I start, um, I feel it's important to let you know that it may be a little bit uh, of a rebuke sometimes, but that's actually part of what the Bible does. You know? uh, I think Second Timothy says that you know, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for various things, and one of those things is, is rebuke and reproving and sort of teaching us the right way to go. So... If I get a little bit intense, just uh, just pray and let the Holy Spirit help you out with it because uh, I'll be praying that he's helping me out with it as well. So what are we talking about today? We're talking about discipleship. Um, there is a whole bunch of different things, like Sondergeld said, that the project is about, and one of the main things that we're about is discipleship. And this has actually been the last thing for us to get going because it's probably been one of the most difficult things for us to work out exactly how is it that God wants us to do this. What's the biblical model of discipleship? So the project's little motto, if you've seen on the logo, I think back there you can see, Making Disciples of Jesus. When we were coming up with, uh, with the project, we wanted to have a, a short mission statement. This is what we're all about. And that's what we're about at the project here. We're about making disciples of Jesus. We're about uh, helping you to become more like Christ because that's exactly what God wants for you. He wants for you to become more like Christ. Our slogan isn't making converts to Christ. That's not our main intention. Obviously, we want to do that. We want to see people saved, but we don't want to stop there. We want to continue on and make disciples. Uh, in Matthew 28:19, Jesus says to his disciples what's become known as the Great Commission. He says, go, therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus actually gave the commandment to his disciples, not just to go out and preach or teach or even to go out and help people, but to make disciples of people in all nations, to go out and make disciples. Jesus doesn't, want, doesn't just want converts, but he wants disciples. So that's what we're here about. That's what we're here for, to make disciples. The word disciple comes from the Latin word discipulus. Okay, I'm an English teacher. I'm trying to be an English teacher, so this is what I have to do every single time I talk about anything. I have to work out what it actually means right down at the root. And it's actually really helpful to do that because discipulus is also the root word for two other words, for the word pupil and for the word discipline. See, a disciple is someone who's a pupil. It's someone that learns, but it's also uh, someone who sometimes needs to get disciplined. And that, we're not really comfortable with that a lot of the time. But, you know, there's some times in the Bible that Jesus was pretty heavy in his discipline of some of the, of some of the uh, disciples. You know, there's that part that, uh, that Peter's kind of saying, maybe you don't have to do this, maybe you don't have to go to the cross. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. That's, that's about as harsh a rebuke as you can get. Okay, Peter, he's not thinking about what he's saying enough, and so there's a rebuke and there's some discipline that comes from Jesus. Being a disciple is about learning, and sometimes it's about being uh, disciplined. 
So I guess if we're not just about converts, if we're about disciples as well, what's the main difference? What's the big difference between a convert and a disciple? Well, conversion is really an instant. It's a moment. It might not just be in a second. You know, maybe your process of conversion was a really long time. Maybe you started talking to Christians and then you slowly started coming to church and maybe you started reading your Bible and you'd pray occasionally. And then at some point you, you, you might have prayed the sinner's prayer or whatever. But when you look back at it, you might not really know exactly when was the point that I converted. When was the point that I went from not believing to believing or from not following Christ to following Christ? Regardless, though... One of the big things about conversion is that it is a moment. It has an end point. You go from being converted, or from not converted to converted. It has an end point. Discipleship is everything that comes after that. <clears throat> so what exactly is it that comes after conversion, after a commitment to, the, to Jesus as being the Lord of everything? Uh, David Powlison says this about it. He says, after conversion, you commence on a lifelong process of discipleship. You grow up in faith, grow up in love, grow up in wisdom. This is a long, hard teaching and learning process, a lifelong re-education for one and all. Our faithlessness, lovelessness and foolishness continually contradict our progress. Sometimes headway is negligible. We stagnate or regress or even hurl ourselves back into the darkness. Nevertheless, God resolutely makes us disciples of Jesus. Our education in the ways of God our formation in his image occurs both formally and informally, both intentionally and unwittingly. In some manner or other, discipleship bears fruit in service. Becoming somehow good, we become good for something. We become more skillful in ministry, learning to consider the interests of others. We learn to put God's particular gifts to work, fulfilling more or less his calling and our intended purpose. By his persevering mercy, we increasingly fulfill his express calling and so find our true purpose in life. I think that's a pretty great example or a pretty great description of what discipleship is. Particularly the idea that, if you go back, if you go back, sometimes our hearts, when we come to Jesus, aren't automatically awesome, brilliant. Okay? We come to Jesus and Jesus starts a work in us, but it's not like this overnight thing necessarily. And sometimes that happens. And that's great when it does. But we we continue to be fallen people. We're just fallen people that know the Saviour. That's all. So when he says our faithlessness, faithlessness, our lovelessness and foolishness continually contradict our progress and sometimes we stagnate or even hurl ourselves back into the darkness, it's a nice thing to know that sometimes just because you're not going forward or it feels like you're struggling, that doesn't mean that you're not in the process. So, <clears throat> you see, the difference between conversion and disciple I think it's a difference in tense. Once again, this is the English teacher coming out, right? Conversion is past tense. It's something that's happened. I have converted. Whereas discipleship is something called present continuous. It's this continual submitting to being discipled. I continually submit myself to being discipled. <clears throat> we don't believe, we, we hear, we don't believe that our job is over or your job, or the work of Christ in you is over just after you've made some sort of decision to follow him. The decision to follow him actually entails a working out because it, you've decided to follow him. So discipleship is the following process. It's the thing that comes afterwards. It's the actual following. You don't make a decision to follow someone and then just stand there feeling really good about yourself that you've made that decision. The guy's walking away and you're just standing there, you know. 
You actually have to work it. You actually have to do something. It's a continual striving to excel, a process of changing our hearts. So we don't just want converts here. A loathe to us if we preach and teach and pray for people until they make a decision to come to Christ and then we cut them away and we leave them to work it out on their own. Because the truth is, it's hard. It's hard sometimes because we come with hearts that are messed up and it's hard necessarily to know the right way forward. The interesting thing, I think, about this whole idea is a lot of the time it seems that churches do that. I think in the past I've been to churches or I've heard of churches where the main thing is about, I Sondi said it a couple of weeks ago, said it's about getting bums on seeds and it's about the 15-minute conversation and then the conversion and that's it. You've done your good thing and off you go. You know, but the, weird, the, the interesting thing is that that's not it. You know? Conversion is just the beginning. It's not the end. So one of the interesting things that I find about this process is uh, I think that it's actually built into us. I think that the, uh, the revolution of self-help that we see on TV and programs that are about uh, helping you to become better at whatever different things, it's actually tapping into something that we know is true of us, and that is that we need help. See, the world knows that you need help. And society has a funny way of tapping into things that are built within us and making money out of it. And that's what they try to do, right? So you've got Oprah, Dr. Oz, Dr. Phil, Better Homes and Gardens, MasterChef. These people actually teach us. They teach us about ourselves, about our bodies, about our relationships, about our homes, our gardens, our food. You know, without realising it, there's probably millions of people in the world that are technically disciples of Oprah. You know, Maybe you're technically a disciple of one of the dudes off MasterChef. Or if you watch My Kitchen Rules, maybe you're just like, Manu is, he's the guy that I'm going to follow. He's, I'm going to be a disciple of Manu. I even want to talk in a French accent whenever possible and say bon appetit to people. Because you start to copy the person that you watch. You start to copy the person that you're being discipled by. It's a good thing to think about sometimes. If you do stuff that other people do and you're copying them, that is exactly what discipleship is. So it's good to think about, is this the person that I should be discipled by? Am I being discipled by Christ or by someone entertaining on TV whose real purpose is actually just to make money, not because they care about me? <clears throat> See, the government gets in on it as well. You know, There's school and university, kind of these government-led institutions. But the weird thing about it is that society has actually said, yeah, you need help. You need to be taught how to do stuff. You need to go to school so that you can learn how to become an active member of society, and that's great. And then maybe you'll go to uni, but really... You don't need help after about 25. You know, obviously, you can be a mature age and you can go back to uni, but the, ma- the basic cutoff is at 25, everyone kind of assumes that you've made it and that you don't need help anymore. But, I mean, God sees it differently, and the Bible's very clear about the fact that God sees it differently. You know, God has actually created the wonderful unit of the family, which is set up, amongst other things, to teach to instruct and reprove children, to help them to grow up into functional, well-developed people, and when God's involved, to teach them the ways of God. It's my belief, and I think that it's biblical as well, that the church, one of the church's principal occupations is the continuation of this instruction. We become a family, a family that helps and instructs each other all the way. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how old you get, you've still got stuff to learn. And that's actually a very liberating thing when it comes down to it because it means that you never have to be right. You never have to have it all together. It's actually much better than thinking, I've got to get, I'm over 25 now, so that's it, I can't make any more mistakes from now on. However, the weird thing is that 
society teaches us that there's a cut-off date to discipleship. And I think that the church, unless it's purposeful, I think that the church kind of believes it as well. And we kind of stop trying to help people after they get to a certain age. <clears throat> as Pallison said before, discipleship is about change. But how do we change? If we, if we have to change, well, how is it that we change? The Bible's very clear that godly change comes through, from, and by God. It's God that changes us. Movement towards Christ-likeness is through God's grace. Change for the good, sanctifying change that makes us more like Christ, with a heart like him, that's not something that the Bible teaches we can do on our own. The weird thing is people can be good, and you probably know people that don't know Christ. They're great. They're really good people. And people can change their behaviour from bad to good. But behavioural change, just mere behavioural change, is different to biblical change. The type of change that a disciple is committed to is not just a change in behaviour. It's a change in heart. It's actually a reforming of our heart. We move from worshipping ourselves to worshipping God. We move from serving ourselves to serving other people. That's the discipleship process. Allowing God to chip away at our hardened hearts, to grind away the callous chunks that Ephesians talks about. It talks about the fact that our hearts have calluses. Discipleship is about allowing God to grind those calluses away, to slowly transform our heart from a heart of stone that we fashioned for ourselves to a heart of flesh that God creates anew. And the interesting thing about all change is that our actions are actually always from the heart anyway. All behaviour stems from the heart. So if there is a behaviour change, but not a heart change, the behaviour often goes from being about honouring God to honouring ourselves. For, for example, a person can do good works on their own, but what's their motivation? Is it because they know from experience that doing good things gets them accolade and power and people are impressed by them? Well, then their heart is directed towards themselves. Do they do good things because they're afraid of what people will think? Then their heart's... Uh, have got a massive fear of man problem. They just want to impress other people because they're scared about what other people are going to think. Or do they, good thi do they do good things because they think that it gains them salvation or favour from God? Well, then they're religious and self-righteous. See, if behaviour changes but heart doesn't change, most of the time that means that the heart is actually in a bad place because your behaviour is coming out of something different, a different intention. It's not about God, it's about yourself. So we want God to change our hearts. That's what discipleship is. But how does God do it? God uses a variety of methods, as can be seen in the Bible, and Pallison says that there's five specific ways. This is David Pallison. says that there's five uh, specific ways that God changes us, and these are through situations, through his word or truth, so that could be the Bible, uh, through other people, through supernatural intervention, or through grace-led obedience. Now, I think that a large percentage of change that happens in people is actually because of other people. I think that that's one of the main ways that God does it. He uses other people. You, you could say almost that every single change that you've ever had has been in a situation, okay? Has been because of his truth, because you might have been in a situation and someone spoke his truth. Well, that's like a three-in-one, you know? It's God's truth coming through somebody else, and that's the situation that you're in. And always, because all change is God-based anyway, it's always through his grace. But I think that one of the triggers, one of the main triggers, is the way that God uses other people. Even, I think, as a great example is that there's a significant amount of students from TCC here. 
And one of the things that we hear a lot, even after kids have left school, after they've graduated, is that the things that happen at 9-10 camp are like defining moments for them. There's some defining moments there. And arguably and obviously, that is, a, that is God moving. But one of the main triggers there is that there's actually people involved that are being obedient to Christ and they're helping and they're discipling them. So God steps in, but God actually moves and works through people that are being obedient to him. Think about it for yourself. Hopefully there's been times in your own life that you've been changed by people. God wants to use people to change you. And really importantly, he wants to use you to change other people as well. That's the process of discipleship that we're focusing on today. The way that we, in which we allow God to work through others in our lives and the way in which we are willing to be used by God to work in other people's lives. You know, the majority of the New Testament, other than the Gospels, but obviously the Gospels is full of discipleship because that's what Jesus is doing with his disciples. But after that, the majority of that is actually discipleship at work. Particularly the epistles, which are the, some of the letters that Paul wrote to churches and individuals these were letters of instruction. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is discipleship. What's Paul saying? Paul's not saying, do what I do and be like me all the time. That's not what he says. Okay? He says, be an imitator of me as I imitate Christ. In the things that I do that are imitating Christ, do these things. See, in Galatians, we actually get to hear a little bit of Paul's history. And the weird thing about Paul is, you know, Paul was this religious zealot who actually persecuted the church fairly violently for a long period of time until he had this amazing uh, supernatural intervention by God on the road to Damascus. And after that, he went and got taught by a whole bunch of people. You know, conversion wasn't just it. He got converted supernaturally, and then there was being taught. He was taught by Peter, and he went off and actually studied for three years with a whole bunch of different people. And then after that, part of his following Christ that he does is to continue to teach other people as well. And he did a lot of it. Paul wrote letters to the church in Corinth, which is Corinthians, as well as Galatia, Thessalonica, Colossia, Ephesus, Rome, Philippi. And he also wrote letters to individual people as well. Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. See, Paul is a disciple, he was taught by others and he's discipled by Christ, but he's, he was also a discipler. He also saw it as his job to go out and disciple other people as well, instructing them to become more like Christ. Now, the really important part to realise about discipleship before we go any further is that discipleship is not telling someone to become more like us. Right? I know that I've heard Sonny say that. You know, Sometimes we just think if everybody was like me, then the world would be better because no one would fight, because everyone would agree because they were all like me. Right? But the world would also be a really boring place if everyone was like me. I guarantee it. Many, much of the time, I'm not a very exciting person to know. Okay? God creates people as individuals with individual personalities. And discipling someone is not about saying, hey, come and be like me. It's about saying, hey, I want to help you to be like Christ. Because that's what you have to do. That's what God wants you to do. He wants you to become like Christ while still being you, the person that God created you to be. There's a really great book, uh, which is... An awesome example of discipleship and the discipleship that Paul does, and that's uh, Philemon. Philemon is just one chapter. It's very short. I've got to be honest, until I did this, I hadn't read it. 
I haven't read the whole Bible, I'll get in trouble. But I just don't think I read it. Maybe I had read it once a long time ago. But I definitely wasn't really, really familiar with it. And if you haven't read it, if I'm able to give homework, if I'm allowed to give homework, I give that homework. You know, I'll give you a green slip if you don't get it. A green slip, that's a detention. If you don't get it done, okay? So really, I mean, it's short. It's just not, it's not long enough for you to come back next week and say, oh, geez, I opened it and it was too long. It's massive. It's really short. It's one chapter. But it's a fantastic example. It teaches us, I think it teaches us six things about discipleship and about the way that Paul actually discipled people. Just to give you a bit of a background, Paul is writing Philemon while he's in prison. And it's written to a man called Philemon, surprisingly enough, as well as a woman called Aphia and a man called Archippus. It's also addressed to the entire church that meets in Philemon's house. Now, in this letter, Paul spends most of his time appealing to Philemon and telling him, please, can you take back this slave, Onesimus? There was a slave, Onesimus, that it looks like, it's a little bit difficult to tell, but I did do some research into this, and what, we, what it appears, though, is Onesimus was a slave of Philemon. Philemon, while being regenerate, was still part of culture at that point and actually had a slave, maybe more. But, but Onesimus was a, was, a, was a slave, he, was, he ran away, and somehow it looks like he found Paul while Paul was, was, was in prison. And then Paul is writing to Philemon and saying, can you please take Onesimus back? I want you to take him back and I want you to forgive him. This, this letter, like I say, gives us some awesome insight into discipleship. So number one, discipleship is a commitment. Paul is in prison, okay? Now, I don't know about you, but if I was in prison, I would think, hey, I can take a break from discipleship now because I'm in jail, you know? I'm in jail I, I don't get a chance to really talk to anyone anymore. I'm sure God doesn't want me to be here because that's not his purpose for my life. He doesn't want me to be in jail. So obviously something's gone wrong, so I get to get out of my commitment for a little bit. Yeah, I probably would be supported in that as well. I have a feeling that my family would be very, very upset that I was in jail. Would you guys be upset that I was in jail? No, Pat doesn't care. He probably was the one that got me into jail in the first place. My family, I'm sure, would be very supportive of the fact. And if I didn't want to disciple someone, if I said to Dad, Dad, I just don't think, I just, I'm really sad about the fact that I'm in jail. He'd be like, yes, no, we're sad as well. Don't, don't you worry. We'll get you out of here and then you can go back to discipleship. That's not what Paul does. Paul's like, I'm in jail. I got thrown into jail for doing the right thing, for being a missionary, for going and talking to people. And I'm going to keep doing it even though I'm in jail. I'm going to write letters. And a lot of letters that Paul writes, you know, he's writing a whole bunch of stuff to people in very difficult situations, and he still does it. So discipleship is a commitment. It's not something you do just when you've got the time and you've got nothing, there's nothing good on TV. It's a commitment. Secondly, discipleship is not concerned with social status. It's a really interesting fact about Paul. Obviously, he's in jail, okay? He's a bit of a travelling guy who's getting around. Hard to think that he's got a lot of cash on hand, okay? I do think he was a tent maker from memory, and that's how he made his money, but he's not loaded, right? Philemon, on the other hand, appears to be loaded. He's got a house, because he's got a house church. So unless they're meeting in someone else's house, although then it wouldn't be called his house church. It's the church that meets at his house. So he has a home, and it's a home big enough to fit a whole bunch of people in it. Not only that, but Philemon obviously had at least one slave, probably more. And to own a slave, obviously, you've got to have some cash. So the interesting thing to realise about this is that the discipleship doesn't, it doesn't matter about social status. Philemon might have been higher than Paul socially, but he wasn't spiritually. So discipleship actually ignores all of that. A lot of the time when we're looking for ways out of discipleship, which funnily enough our fallen hearts do, 
That's one of the reasons that we use. Oh, I don't think I'm good enough to disciple that person. They've got more money or they're doing better at their work. It doesn't matter. Thirdly, <clears throat> discipleship accepts and loves the lowly. Anesimus was actually referred to by Paul in Philemon as he refers to him as his son. This is a runaway slave, which is one of the most lowly people that you can be back in the day. And somehow he finds Paul while Paul is in prison and Paul spends enough time with him to disciple him and then wants to send him back. And he actually refers to him as his son. He refers to himself as Anesimus' father. Now, discipleship in some ways seems like it's pretty easy when the person that you're talking to has it all together. But why are you discipling someone that has it all together? (laughs) What's that about? It's the people that are lowly that actually need the help. There's a really great story. I'm going to talk a bit about Palliston because on the bus trip down to Canberra, which is, I don't know, 13 hours, and the bus trip back up, which is another 13 hours, Sondergill was listening to a lot of Palliston, and I was a little bit bored, so I stuck on the headphones as well. But interestingly enough, and it was actually very helpful for me, Palliston told this amazing case study. He's a counsellor, and he told this story about the time that he, this time that he was counselling a, uh, a person who was about, I think he was about 30 years old. And this guy's name was John. And, uh, and his parents were Baptists. And John thought that he may have been John the Baptist. John had, uh, well, I think has, I'm not sure, uh, extreme schizophrenia. Uh, he thought that everybody was after him. He didn't want to go outside because he was pretty sure the FBI was after him. They were keeping tabs on him. There were satellites going on. The government knew what was going on at all times. In fact, my favourite part uh, is that he was fairly convinced that every single song Cat Stevens wrote was about him. So I don't know if Matthew and son, like if he thought he was Matthew or the son or if Wild World was about him or this old schoolyard. I know a bit of Cat Stevens, unfortunately. So anyway, for some reason, this guy was obviously pretty out there, right? He was a psycho and he had spent majority of his adult life in psych wards, in hospital, under lock and key, because he just, he was not able to function in society very well. It looks like from about 17, he just started to develop this thing. And then from then on, he was pretty much, he was pretty much in hospital the entire time. Anyway, Pallison comes in because his, this guy's mum tricks the dude, John, into coming and seeing him. So then Pallison has this conversation. And over about six months, I think, Pallison meets with him once a month for counselling and actually ends up leading the guy to Christ. And he leads the guy to Christ through some really brutal words. He tells him, you're proud. You're proud. You think that you're the most important person in the world. That's why all these FBI people are after you, but you're not the most important person in the world, and they're not after you. Can you imagine saying that to someone who's a schizophrenic? Oh, your main problem is that you think you're better than everyone. Okay? Because the other flip side is he actually didn't think he was better than everyone, or at least he didn't say that he thought that. Anyway, that's not actually the point of my story, although I think, it's, I think that's an interesting part of it, that actually being brutal with someone and telling them the truth can just cut through a lot of stuff. It can cut through stuff that we're scared about saying. It can get to the truth a lot faster, which is good. But anyway, Pallison converted this guy, essentially, and then brought him along to church because after he was converted, he obviously needed to be discipled. He needed to grow somewhere, so he went to church. And there's a guy at this church who owns a construction company and decides to take, to take John on. John's a guy who's probably never worked a proper job in his life, and like I say, he's been under lock and key for the majority of his adult life. And he says, I'm going to give this guy a job. And one of, the, one of the main things that John did when he was released out, this prior to this point, when he went out into community, he said, try to get a job, but eventually he just stopped going. Within a couple of weeks, 
he'd stop going. He'd just stay at home and he'd get himself purposefully fired because he didn't want to go to work. Anyway, this guy knew that that was going to happen and he didn't let him get fired. He said, I'm going to let this guy, I'm going to employ this man who doesn't know anything about construction and I'm going to go to his house. On the days that he doesn't turn up to work, I'm going to go to his house, I'm going to knock on his door and I'm going to drag him to work and I'm not going to let him get fired. I mean, that's, for me, this was really convicting because I'm, I'm kind of, I'm really into discipleship. I think it's really great. But one of the things I've always thought is, if you want to be a disciple, you can come to me. Yeah? But the, the fact is that some people just, they're not ready for that. They don't have that heart. Their heart isn't in the place where they can actually do the work and pursue you. So this guy pursued this guy and he wouldn't let him get fired. And eventually through work, he started going to work outings and his life changed. I mean, Pallison said he didn't know where he was at now, so he can't say that everything stayed brilliant. But what it took was not just the person converting him and then cutting away. It took a person, a man who was willing to sacrifice to go and to pursue this guy, no matter how low he was. I mean, that would have been weird. Yeah? The conversations with this guy who thought Cat Stevens was, talking, was singing about him all the time, there'd be some awkward, strange conversations. But the guy knew that that's what he needed to do. Number four, discipleship centers on speaking the truth in love. There's a really great part of Philemon where Paul is writing and he says, even though I could command you to do this through the authority that I have in Christ, I'm not going to. I'd prefer actually to plead with you in love. Please take Onesimus back. See, there's love involved. Discipleship is not just getting in there and axing someone and punching them in the face over and over again until they do the right thing, right? It's loving them. You're actually there because you love them. And if you're there for any other reason, it's not going to end well. Speaking the truth in love is speaking the truth because you love them, not speaking the truth just because you want them to change. You want them to change because you love them. Number five, discipleship is a sacrifice. This really funny thing happens after this, or I think it's, it's strange and once again really convicting. Paul actually offers to pay Onesimus' debts from prison. So he writes in the thing, if an, I, I want you to take Onesimus back, please take him back. Um, he's become like a son to me. I think he can, he can come back and you should forgive him all of his debts. And if he does have any debts, I'll pay them. And he's in prison and Philemon's loaded and he's still offering to do it. And that doesn't really make sense to us. I mean, I think I would say, hey, I want you to take this guy back and because you're so loaded, you can just deal with it, right? But Paul, with very little money, as far as we can tell, who's in prison, still says, I'll pay for all of his debts. What a massive sacrifice because it's love. It's love that's actually pursuing it. And finally, discipleship is constant and it's often multiple. At the start of the book, Paul talks about Timothy just very, very briefly. And we know that Paul discipled Timothy. He obviously discipled Onesimus and Philemon all at the same time. And we know that he was writing letters to a whole bunch of other people as well. So discipleship is not just one person at a time necessarily. Now, sometimes that's okay. Yeah? But... I really want to make it clear that it's a constant thing. You're there for the other person to help them out. Obviously, there's boundaries. But the other thing is that it can be multiple. You can be discipling a bunch of people at once, and that's what Paul did. Okay. It's really important to make clear that discipleship is not about working for your salvation. It's not about doing a whole bunch of stuff so that God likes you. That's not the point of discipleship. When we come to Christ... 
Our hearts are stone temples filled with idols. That's, that's the place. When we, when we first come to Christ, when we've been living for ourselves, we've constructed a temple in our heart and it's filled with rotten, dodgy stuff. And discipleship is not this brutalizing thing. It's actually liberation from slavery to our false gods. We come to God with baggage, right? Christ's freedom is true and it's complete, but the working out of Christ in us is Christ's cleaning house. He wants to get in there and clean stuff out. And there's stuff in there that you want to hold on to that you don't want him to take just yet. Oh, yeah, I've come to Christ and I know that he is the Lord, but ah, I just don't want to let go of that just yet because I'm still kind of convinced that that actually might be the Lord. I'm not sure. And I want to hold on to stuff, stuff that's bad for me. To be discipled is to realize that you need help and to allow God to use other people to identify and purge your idolatries through the power of Christ in order to become more like him. And the main reason that we need to be discipled is because we have deceitful hearts. Paul says in Romans 7.15, and I love that Paul says this because this is a guy that I think it can be easy for us to think has it all together. Right? But Paul says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Haven't you felt that before? When there's something that you just you know you don't want to do, and you genuinely don't want to do it, but you just do it anyway, and you can even be in the middle of doing it. You can be in the middle of going, going nuts at someone and being really, really angry and out of control, and you can know that you shouldn't be doing it, and you don't want to do it, and you hate it, but you're doing it anyway. The weird thing is, and the truth is, that there's actually a part of your heart that still does want to do it, and that's the part that wins. A part of your heart, which Jeremiah 14.9 says, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, still believes that that thing that you do is good for you. And then you act on that part of your heart. The truth is that your heart doesn't know what's best for you. You don't know what's best for you. You might know what you want, but you don't know what you need. I use this example with students sometimes. You know what you want if you really, really love McDonald's. Right? You want a Big Mac. Or you want some nuggets. Or you want a cheeseburger. And I think the McOz is back, so maybe you're pretty keen to get in there and have a McOz, right? But that's not what you need, is it? Because you'll die if you do that. Okay? If you eat McDonald's every day for your entire life, you will die. I can say that. Well, I mean, I can say that, obviously, because everyone will die, so I'm not going to get into trouble there. Okay? But the truth is, it's not good for you. It might be what you want, but it's not what you need. And that's what our heart does. It actually tells us, this is what you want, but it doesn't know by itself, what we need. If you always followed your heart and your emotions without letting it be changed by God, you would be led further and further away from Christ and further into your own temple of self-idolatry. You've heard that expression, to be full of yourself, yeah? And we say that about people that are proud, they're full of themselves. It's quite literally true. You're actually full of yourself. When you come to Christ, you are full of yourself and God wants to empty you so you can become full of Christ. And that's what discipleship is. It's that emptying thing. And emptying yourself, that can be painful sometimes. I believe, actually, that the church, in general, all over the world, has a discipleship problem. I believe that in significant amount of cases, churches work hard to get people saved, and then they're either too scared or too confused or too relaxed about the intense and long-term work of discipleship. The scary thing is that our choice about discipleship is not just our choice. In families, one person's decision affects everyone, and the same thing goes in churches. If you have been the beneficiary of someone discipling you, 
chances are they were discipled by someone. And they were discipled by someone. In fact, if a couple of hundred years ago one person made the decision not to disciple somebody else, you may not even be saved. Discipleship affects everybody. And the decision that you make about about discipleship will affect everybody else in this church and in your family and in the wider community. Everybody loses, actually, when you decide not to disciple people. First of all, obviously, the person who would have been getting discipled loses because they're not getting discipled. But you actually lose as well because there's an amazing process that happens when you're working with someone where Christ actually changes your own heart and you see things in them which affect you. Some of my most intense learning processes have actually been when I've been going through something with somebody else and helping them, and I'm just listening to the truth that God is giving me, and it's affecting me at the same time, and I'm changing as well. I think that the early church grew and thrived because of discipleship, and I think that the modern church now could shrivel and die because of a lack of it. David Kinnaman wrote this book called You Lost Me, which is about why young people leave church. I talked about it when I talked about the culture thing at the start of the year. And I'll probably talk about it again because it's one of the things I'm most passionate about is why do young people who grow up in Christian families leave church and just forget about it all? And one of the main things that he came up with uh, through a whole bunch of research and, and questionnaires and studies is that overall a large number of young people found that the church did not develop a deep faith within them. It was shallow. It didn't apply to their world in a real meaty way. He writes in his book, these are three things taken from the one chapter, which is all about uh, discipleship. We must, think what it, uh, we must rethink what it means to make disciples in a context of massive, compounded cultural change. I believe that we need to change from an industrialised mass production, public education approach and embrace the messy adventure of relationship. We need a new set of ideas and practices based upon apprenticeship. You know, that guy, John the Baptist, he wouldn't have fit into the mass production version of discipleship, would he? He might come to church and everyone's like, oh, well, you can, we've got a program right here for you. We've already set it up. And the guy's like, no, you don't understand. I think that Cat Stevens is singing to me. Out. He's gone. He doesn't fit in. It's not going to work. And the truth is that everybody, not everybody obviously has problems that are that weird, but we all have problems. And some of our problems might actually be more intense, but they just don't manifest themselves in such a strange way. So we can't all just fit into these moulds. We should also, he says, reconsider our metrics of success. A woodworking artisan does not employ hundreds of protégés. He could hire any number of labourers to mass-produce furniture, but his goal is not thousands of cookie-cutter headboards or tables. His aim is to pass on the fine art of carpentry. You know, our aim is to pass on the fine art of following Christ with all of our hearts. So he selects one or two apprentices who want to learn the craft. He goes on making beautiful, one-of-a-kind pieces of furniture, and he spends time making future craftsmen. And this last one, I love this. This is so good. What if, instead of measuring our success by the numbers in churches, we changed our metrics? What if we said that the hallmark of mature Christianity is a willingness to invest in a young person for a period of two to four years, teaching him or her the fine art of following Christ? Seriously, I just think that, for me, that's convicting, yeah? You know, I think that we get this idea sometimes that spiritual maturity is when you're, when you're old, you know, or when you're above my age. Whatever my age is, it'll always be above that. So right now, it's above 25. If you're above 25 and you've been in the church for a while, then maybe that means you're spiritually mature. But this is suggesting a reassessment. You know, if you're not, 
discipling someone, if you're not willing to invest in somebody's life to teach them the ways of Christ, why not? Why aren't you willing to do it? I mean, it's what God talks about. Jesus wants us to do it. And we're losing young people, continually losing young people, because no one's doing it. Now, the truth is that discipleship is messy because discipleship is personal. Any discipleship that doesn't really get messy, probably you're not really getting down to the details because people are messy. It requires long-term commitment, sacrifice, and pursuit. If every person in this church, or it is their responsibility to invest in a person younger than them for years without any definite end in sight, imagine the difference in growth of those people. So, let's bring it down to us personally right now. Right now, there are a variety of things that you could be thinking about this whole concept. Firstly, you may already be being discipled, and maybe you're already discipling other people. That's awesome. And we really want to encourage you and to help you to do that. However, some of you may still have some pretty big reservations about getting involved in other people's lives. After all, like Kinnaman says, it can get messy. So why does it have to get messy? Because like I said earlier, we have calluses on our hearts and have become hardened and deceitful and we don't like to hear things about ourselves that we've got wrong. Who likes to hear that? Who likes to hear it? When you get something wrong, someone comes up, oh, you got that wrong. You know, I told you so. That's like the, and that's in movies, isn't it? Oh, here it comes, I told you so. We all know, we hate hearing that, you know. But pretty much every time you do something wrong, Jesus is saying, I told you so. He's doing that. And how do we respond to that? How do we respond to getting stuff wrong? A really good analogy, well, I think it's a good analogy that I use with the kids, is this idea of the rose bush, okay? My brother Pat looked after roses for a long period of time, so he can tell me if I get anything wrong here. Okay, but I don't like hearing that I'm wrong, so you better listen. <laughs> a rose bush that produces great flowers and by doing so produces, uh, reaches its maximum potential and, lo- and lives for the purpose for which it was created. That rose bush needs to be looked after. A rose left to itself most often goes to briar. It doesn't do anything. It might produce a couple of ro- I'm getting nods, good. It might produce a couple of flowers here and there, but they're not going to be the most amazing flowers in the world and there's probably not going to be that many of them. Generally, roses need great and tender care. Interestingly, though, roses don't just require encouraging, soft, gentle care. They actually require a weird form of brutal care because roses need to be pruned. And sometimes they need to be pruned quite severely. In fact, the longer a rose bush has gone without being pruned, the more it needs to be pruned. And sometimes you actually need to cut a rose bush right back down so it's just a stump with a couple of weird twigs. and It doesn't even look like anything because it's been such a long time since it's been pruned that it needs to get down to that level. Sometimes it's necessary to cut it all the way down so that it seems like there's nothing left. But if that bush wants to create flowers, then that's actually what needs to happen. And we're the same. Jesus needs to prune us because left to our own devices, we grow in weird, twisted ways. We go to briar. We don't bear the fruit that God intends for us. And the branches that do grow off in weird directions, if we know what's good for us, which most of the time we don't, but Jesus does, those branches need to be cut off. The longer that we leave it, the thicker the branch grows and the more life that it starts to suck out of the plant, the more it becomes one of the main parts of the plant. And then, obviously, the more vital it is that it's cut off. And also, 
the more painful it's going to be. The longer you leave something growing in your life in this twisted way, the more life it will suck out of you, and also the more important it is that it's cut off, but the more painful it will be when it does happen. Because when it's done right, discipleship is confrontational. Remember, though, it's confrontational with love. But it's very necessary. It's really important. In fact, it's one of the ways that God loves us. The Bible is full of verses about what we may consider the brutal way that God loves us. There's some intense verses here. Job 5.17 Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. You're blessed. When God reproves you and tells you that you're wrong, you're blessed. So you better not despise it. Psalm uh, 94.12 Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Proverbs 3.11-12 My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. You know that if you're a parent, right? Now, sometimes you're a parent and your kids are doing something and you just actually get angry and maybe you don't respond out of love. But really, what you want for your kids is the best. You don't smack your child, if that's what you do, because you don't like them. You, you do it for their own good. What happens when a kid goes up and almost touches the hot plate? Get your hand off that. Eh? A little bit of pain, much better than a lot of pain and a big scar. You do it because you love them. Hebrews, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. And this last one, I just think it's great. It's a different translation, but I think it's hilarious. Uh, anyone, any who love knowledge want to be told when they are wrong. It is stupid to hate being corrected. I'm going to just put that on like, I should, I should have that on a shirt when I walk around school so that kids can be like, oh, I'm stupid because I hated that. I hated when you corrected me just then. But it is, it's stupid. If a kid gets smacked on the hand just before he touches the hot plate and says, that was dumb, you shouldn't have done that to me, and then goes and touches it, how stupid is that? You know, God is actually trying to help you to grow so that you don't hurt yourself. Why on earth would we hate that? The flip side of all of this, obviously, when we're talking about pruning the rose bush, is that while you may have to be severe or even brutal, we have to remember it's all for the sake of producing fruit. That doesn't mean you can just hack and slash willy-nilly. You need to be precise. You need to take time to examine and understand the rose so that you know exactly the right cut to make. Is that still right? I'm still right here. There you go. You know, you have to understand it. And you actually need to spend a little bit of time training as well. I'm pretty sure, like if I went and tried to do that to a rose bush, I think it would just be that stump with twigs and I'd keep cutting it and cutting it and then there'd be nothing left, right? Because nothing ever happens. And I don't have the patience as well for roses. I can't handle that. I know Ted does. He's got some great roses, but... No patience for me, you know. My brother, Pat, he needed to be trained so that he could know where is the right place to cut. And when you get trained well enough, when you understand roses enough, you can look, you can spend time, and you can make a couple of precise cuts, and that makes all the difference. Right at the right time, in the right place. Once you've helped a person to identify the parts of their life which are disobedient to God and are destroying them, it's not as easy as saying, just cut it off. Move on. These things are things that in many ways they've, they've started to identify them. If this has been a part of your life for a long time, it feels like a part of who you are. If you prune without care and support, a rose bush will die, as will a person's spirituality or emotional well-being if you go in there and you just destroy them without any support. So it's messy, it's long-term, sometimes it's painful, it's difficult, it's awkward, time-consuming and frustrating. Why would you want to do it? 
That sounds, that sounds like a long list of bad things, right? Why would we want to do that? Well, the truth is it's massively rewarding. It has effects that echo through the ages that you won't even know until you get to heaven, and then that'll be a pretty sweet thing to know. And it's being obedient to the calling that we have from Christ. Importantly, it's also loving people. Pretending that someone doesn't have a problem or not talking to someone about an obvious destructive issue in their life, that's not loving them. It's loving yourself because you don't want that awkward situation. You don't want that weird conversation where you say, hey, I think that you might be, I might be wrong here, but I think that maybe you're doing something that's destroying you. Shut up, you leave me alone. Back away, back away, okay? We don't want that to happen, so straight away, we actually love ourselves more by not approaching someone. And we trick ourselves into thinking that we're loving them. Oh, it's not my place to say. You know, I might be wrong, there might be things that I don't really know about. Really, that's just a whole bunch of rubbish that we put in front because we don't want to have that awkward situation. We actually love ourselves more than we love them. This is one of the reasons that I think that the church is struggling in the realm of discipleship. Because often it's not until you've received it for yourself that you realise how great it is. And if you've never received it, then I think that's a fair enough reason that you might not realise how good it is and want to do it for other people and to help other people. I am extremely passionate about discipleship. In fact, like right back at the start, when Sonny and Gilmore and I started meeting for this, that's what I put my hand up. I said, that's just what I... I just care about that so much. I care about it so much. Because I've been the beneficiary of people being obedient to Christ and discipling me. Particularly, I had two people over my most tumultuous years from 16 to 23. And for those of you that knew me during that time, you'll know. I was not... I did not think I would be standing up and preaching in a church. These people stuck with me in incredible ways and helped me to grow and understand how destructive some of my choices were. One of them was my teacher and the other one was my boss. And both went on to become great friends. Some of the most meaningful relationships you ever forge will be with these mentors of the faith. So that's another great encouragement to be involved. All right, now we get to the brutal part. Why don't you want to be discipled? Why don't you want to be discipled? I've talked about this whole thing, and there might still be some part of your hearts, which we already know are deceitful, so you shouldn't listen to them anyway, but there might be some parts that are saying, I don't want to do this, I don't want to get involved with this. I think that there might be four reasons. First of all, pride. You don't want to change because you're not willing to accept that you're wrong. You may have been living this way. There may be something in your mind right now that you know needs to change. And you might have been living like this for such a long time that you're just not willing to admit it. Because to admit it now, that you're wrong, that would in many ways mean that you've lived the majority of your life, you've been living a lie with a wrong mindset. Or maybe it's about humiliation. Maybe you don't want to be humiliated, even in front of just one or two people, let alone in front of a group. Particularly, you may not want to be humiliated in front of someone that you're supposed to be leading. Maybe you don't want to be humiliated in front of your wife in front of your husband. To admit that you've got a problem in front of someone that you're supposed to be leading. Like for, this is an interesting thing with teachers, right? Teachers a lot of the time struggle to be told that we're wrong. And the reason is because we, we have to spend most of our time acting like we're right. We stand up in front of a class and we say, this is the truth and I imbue it to you. And then all of a sudden if we're found to be fallible, like seriously, some teachers, if the kid puts their hand up and says, I think you're wrong there, they just lose it. They can't handle that. It's a very, very difficult thing because we're supposed to be leading. And maybe that would be a hum- humiliating thing. But, of course, one of the great things about root words is that we know that humility comes from humiliation. They're linked. Cowardice. 
Maybe you're scared of the awkward situation of being honest about issues that you're struggling with. You're afraid of the conflict and internal upheaval that addressing issues may cause. But the cool thing is that Jesus always dealt with the core, not with the surface. And that's, you might be scared of that, but that's actually where the liberation is. Or maybe it's just disobedience. Maybe you don't want to be discipled because you want to keep on sinning. Having someone real and tangible telling you that you're wrong or trying to help you through your weakness would inevitably end in you having to change your ways. And maybe you don't want to change your ways. Maybe you're happy to keep on sinning. And as long as, long as no one tells you, you can keep lying to yourself and saying, it's not really a sin. But the truth is that Jesus sees it all anyway and wants you to change. All right. What about this? Maybe you've been listening to the entire thing and now you're saying, well, that's well and good. I might want to be discipled, but I'm not very keen to disciple anybody else. That seems like that would be a bit full on for me. Once again, I think that there might be some key reasons as to why. First of all, once again, pride. You don't want to lower yourself to deal with somebody else's messy situations. It's very easy to become arrogant about this sort of thing. It'd be very easy for that, that guy, the construction worker, to say, I'll catch Stephen's guy, he's too much for me. That'd be too weird. I do not want to lower myself to that situation. I don't want to put myself in those situations. I think I'm better than him, and so I'm not going to do it. Or maybe it's fear of man. Maybe you're scared of what other people will say because you don't think that you're good enough. This is a really interesting one because I think that this is one of the main reasons that people don't want to do it. They don't think they're good enough to help anybody else. But you see, that's just indicative of the fact that there's a wrong mindset. You know, It's not you. They're not trying to be like you. They're trying to be like Christ. And Christ is the one that enables you to do it. Fear of man thing? Now, sure, you might be really, really new to the faith, right? And maybe it's not a good idea for you to do it right now. But that's what you should be working towards. You should be working towards being able to do that for other people because it's being obedient. And what about laziness? Maybe you just couldn't be bothered because being involved with other people is more work than it's worth. That could be it. Maybe that's it for you. Maybe you're just like, I'm busy. I work a lot and I don't want to do this. I'm too lazy. Or maybe it's just flat-out disobedience. You just don't want to. You don't want to do what Jesus commands you to do. Because the truth is, he does. Now, the truth is that you guys, everyone, needs to be discipled by Christ. That's what we want. That's what the church is about. It's what Jesus wants. He commanded his disciples to go out and make disciples of all the nations. Okay? It's actually an expectation that you'll be getting discipled. Now, that might not necessarily happen in the way that we facilitate here, but it's an expectation that there's going to be people helping you to grow together. That's what community's for. That's what community groups are for if you already go. But discipleship is more of a one-on-one thing. The heart is deceitful. Okay? I can't get that across enough. I've got a a good friend of mine who a couple of years ago was going through a pretty intense marriage situation. And uh, everyone around him was telling him stuff and I felt like I was the only one that was saying the opposite thing. I felt like I was the only one that was saying, are you really sure that this is the right thing to do? Are you sure that you're going the right way? Everybody else is saying, no, it's good, you're doing the right thing, you're doing what's good for you, you need to, you need to do this, you need to pursue that goal and you need to follow all the way through. And I was sitting here saying, are you sure? That's all I'm saying, are you sure? And then I asked him the question, man, is there anybody in your life that if you said, tell me what to do, and they told you that you would just do it? 
that you would just follow what they said, you would just trust and you would do it? And he said no. And for me, that was like, well, no one's going to change his mind. He's already got his mind set. There's no one that he listens to enough to change his mind. There's no one that he respects enough to cut across the the things that he wants to do. And that was kind of the point in which I realized his mind wasn't going to be changed. It was pretty hard for me. My example of being discipled actually was all about that cutting across thing because my heart was deceitful and continues to be deceitful now. I remember an express situation where I was uh, going out uh, just with a couple of friends. We just went out and went to the pub, I think, and had a couple of beers or something, right? This was a long time ago. I still drink beers, though. It's okay. <laughs> and the truth is I was sitting there having this conversation and I actually abused this this guy, this friend of mine, this my mentor, actually just said some abusive words to him. Like I was just mucking around. That's what Australians do, you know. And he wasn't Australian; he's American, so uh, he doesn't he didn't really understand that that well. And he just flat out rebuked me right in front of these other people. Gilmore was there. I think Gil- you were there, weren't you, Gilmore? Yeah. And he just said, "Diff, you're doing the wrong thing. I'm a child of God, and you shouldn't abuse me like that." And I'm just like, you know who you're dealing with. I will destroy you, right? Even though he's my mentor, I'm like, no, that's not cool. You don't do that. And I like, I hurriedly like made an excuse to leave and I went outside and had a cigarette. I jumped in my car and I drove off very, very angry, right? But as I was in the car, I don't know what it was. And this is just the grace of God. Because the fact is he was right. I got around when I was younger. I grew up with Mika, he knows. I got around abusing people all the time to make myself feel better. I used to always do it. And my heart was so deceitful that I had made so many excuses about the fact that this is okay, this is who I am, this is what Australians do, we just abuse people, that I wasn't willing to change until someone came in and cut across it. My heart was deceitful and my heart needed somebody else to come in from the outside because I wasn't going to make that change by myself. So, hopefully you've seen that discipleship is not just important and not just something that God commands, but it's something for your own good. And something that's the best for you to disciple other people and to be discipled as well. So here at the project, we have this idea that what we'd like to strive for is one up and one down, which is everyone in the project being discipled by someone older and discipling someone younger. Now, I should point out that this doesn't always have to be the case, the older-younger thing, okay? It can be sideways. I don't even know how old Gilmore and Sondi are. I know they're older than me, but it's rude to ask, I suppose, so I've got no idea. He's old enough to have four kids. But then so is Miko, so, you know, who knows? But really, I don't, it doesn't matter to me that much. What I know is that both of them are more mature spiritually than me. And we all have different relationships with Christ and we all learn different things at different times. But really, what's ideal is that there's someone that you're being discipled by someone and then you're discipling somebody else. It should be self-replicating. That's the model that we see because we see Peter disciples Paul and Paul disciples Timothy and Timothy disciples other people and it continues to go on like that. So... We actually, we're not going to leave you high and dry in this. There's a book that we've purchased, and we've got a whole bunch of them back there, and if you want to purchase it today, how much is it, Sunday? <laughs> What's that? $11. Right? And uh, this is by uh, Bill Clem, who's one of the guys from Relit. I can't remember what it's called. Anyway, thanks, Marcel Stuff. Right? And this is a great book to go through with someone who you're discipling, but also, like, I'm going through it with a couple of students, uh, one student in particular, and uh, when I read it, it's doing stuff for me as well. 
Okay, so we don't actually want to just say, go and disciple people and then leave you to not know how to do it because it's difficult, particularly if you've never done it before. So one of my main jobs this year is going to be to try to help you guys to do it. And if you, you're talking to someone and they've got some issues and you're just like, I don't know what to do here, you can come and talk to someone else about it. That's the whole point of one up, one down. It can go in different directions and you can get more help. So we're going we're gonna to try to set something up because we really believe that it's a really important thing. And next week... Uh, like you heard before, Ross Turner is going to come and preach about uh, one-on-one discipleship and mentoring, which is something that he's been doing, like Sonny said, for a long time. And at the end of that, uh, I'm going to be handing out some forms to you guys. And these are just forms to ask the question, do you want to be discipled? Do you want to disciple anybody else? Is there anyone in particular? So my real encouragement to you is to pray this week about this. We'll be talking about it in community groups. Like I said, in some ways, this isn't what society likes to talk about. It's a bit of a brutal thing where I'm essentially telling you that you're wrong and you need to change. But that's what the Bible tells us, and it's what the Bible tells me, and I know it for myself as well. So this week, I really encourage you guys to pray. Maybe read Philemon, a bit of homework, but to pray to God and to say, is there anyone in particular that you're putting on my heart that you want me to be discipled by or to disciple? Really what we're talking about is just a commitment to meet with someone regularly, at least once a month, we'd say, just for an hour or two and just talk to them and help them with their issues. If you've ever had that before, you know how good it is. I don't feel bad saying this because I know it's going to rock for you. It's going to be good. So I don't even feel like I'm putting it on you because I do it by choice as much as I can all of the time, right? Because it's so good and it'll be great for you. And I really, really pray that God speaks to you through the week and, uh, and, and highlights some people that you can help out and some people that, that, uh, that maybe can help you out. So you pray with me, and then we'll finish up. Jesus, thank you that you've set up a system uh, that you know that we need help. And thank you that when we come to you, you don't just promise us salvation, but you promise us cleansing, that, uh, that we can be righteous through you, that you can clean us out, and that you want to. I pray for, uh, for everybody here that's heard this message this morning. Maybe this is the first time that any of them have heard about this discipleship thing being such a real and important process. I pray that through this week that you highlight to them the importance of it and that you'd be speaking to them and helping them to think about maybe who they'd like to disciple, that you would put names or people on their hearts. I just thank you so much for the gift of each other that we are to each other. I thank you for the people that you put in my life that have changed me. And I thank you for the way that you work through other people to change us to become more like you. Amen. Okay, we're done. Thanks, guys. And uh, if you can pack up some chairs and stuff, that will be sweet. And uh, I believe there's a bunch of delicious treats outside waiting for you. So you can enjoy that.